Welcome to They Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello, hello. Long long time no speak. Uh, I feel like it's been a while. Um, You join us today, listeners, for the 50th episode uh, of They Live By Film. Um, Delighted that we hit this milestone if you've been with us since day one, you're amazing. We love you. If you're here since if this is your first episode, welcome. Um, we, we love we love getting sort of new listeners. Our listenership has grown quite a bit over the last sort of 18 months or so that we've been doing this, the last 50 episodes. We, we've been loving it, and we, we hope you guys have been enjoying it as well. So we decided to do something a little bit different uh, for episode 50, um, rather than doing our normal um, reviews. Um Something that we've done unknowingly throughout our time is we've often thrown hot takes out um, at one another. You know, we've we've mentioned that we don't like such and such a film or such and such a filmmaker. And, you know, we realize that, shit, this might be a pretty, uh, you know, something that that's not a uh, sort of long stretching opinion uh, in the film world. So we thought it'd be fun that we would just throw out some hot takes that we have about film. It can be good. It can be bad, but just something that we'd, we'd, we'd sort of talk about and, and see what, what each other think. Um, Zach is going to get us started. He said he is a bit of a, a softball, uh, maybe a medium, a medium take rather than a hot take. So why don't, why don't you take it away, Zach? And we'll, we'll get into this. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to start with uh, what I would say my my lukewarm to my hottest. So I will start with my first one. Um, we see this a lot with uh, especially with more comic book films coming out. So many films are based on adaptions. Um, and I'm, I would say this is more divisive than necessarily hot. But the idea that the source mater- uh, material that anything is based off matters completely zero. It does not matter if it takes out one element and it says it's based on it. It doesn't matter. Like, um, yeah, I, I just don't get the criticism of the book is better. Well, it's a different medium, so who cares? It doesn't matter. That source material is might as well not exist when you're looking at a film um, to sit there and say, well, they did this in the book. Uh, you know, like you see Tolkien fans going through right now with uh, the new Amazon show. It just doesn't matter. Okay, so... So like the same way that like with Harry Potter fans and they're like, oh, such and such a character. They didn't do this in the book where they're doing that in the movie or they cut down such and such as role or they cut out Voldemort's backstory, for example. That's the criticism you see level. Yeah. And I mean, if the the movie works without it, then who cares? Like you can sit there and say, you know, if you're going through and saying, well, they this could have fixed this issue if they had just done that. I guess that's fair enough. But at the same time. You know, you look at, like, I'll use the example. I'm a big Stephen King fan. Uh, there's yeah. The Shining, which is about, which is an absolutely awful adaption from the book. Mm-hmm. It's an awesome movie. It's a really great movie. Um, and on the other end, you have Gerald's Game, which is a very, very faithful one-to-one adaption from the book. There might be a couple changes, but as far as adaptions go, also a really good movie. You don't have to follow the source material to make a good movie. And I think that's something you see more and more of now. Uh, I think, Adam, I don't know how much, I know you really like the MCU. I don't know how much that gets brought up, like how the storylines from the comics. I know it hits in uh, people complaining about the movie Venom, which I actually like. We can add that as a part of my hot take. I think the Venom movies are fun. 
Um, I don't really give a shit about the comics, but I like the movies. Yeah, the MCU don't really follow the comics at all. Um, like they'll take they'll take a title of a comic arc and then just completely change it to whatever fits the MCU. Like Civil War is probably the best example of that, or Infinity War. You know, they're nothing like the comic book story arcs, and I think that that can piss some people off. I think the most recent one that's pissed people off is with the new series Miss Marvel, mm-hmm. that's just started this week on Disney Plus. And there's a lot of Miss Marvel fans that hate that Disney have changed the nature of her powers. And um, so in the comics, she basically is kind of like Mr. Fantastic in a way. She's stretchy, stretchy and can change sort of her shape and density and stuff. And they completely changed it to make her sort of the same kind of powers that Captain Marvel has. Because mm-hmm. um, they're going to be obviously having a movie together in a couple of years. So there's a lot of people who are not happy about that. I couldn't really care either way personally because I've never read the Miss Marvel comics. So it doesn't, as long as the, as long as the show is good, that's all I care about. So it, it's an interesting take. And I think it's one that you do see a lot. So I can't agree with you that, yeah, it doesn't, I don't see how it can change how good or bad the film is depending on how, how sort of close you are to the source material. If it's good, it's going to be, if it's good, it's good. It's all okay. I, I hear what you're saying, Zach and Adam, and I disagree only on one point. Generally, I, I'm, I'm fine. I, I don't really care. I'm not a purist in that sense. But if you look at what they did to Stephen King's The Dark Tower. <laughs> yeah. Like, look, I hate The Dark Tower, too. Don't worry. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. The movie, you mean, right? That movie is just, no, I love this. I love the series. Now, the movie is bad because the movie's bad. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I don't think that has anything to do with them not following the source material. I think that it's such an impossible. It's an, it's an impossible film to make. Well, here's my point, though, because it's the same thing with Don Quixote, right? There's that documentary that came about how hard it's been for Terry Gilliam to make convert Don Quixote into a movie, right? Yeah. So at some point, I think you have to take a real hard look as a filmmaker and be like, there are certain authors that their stories are good not because of just the main plot line, but because of the way they add richness and depth to the characters and backstory and Stephen King goes on these crazy tangents, right? And um, uh, uh, Cervantes does, the reason that Don Quixote is so good is the humor that he has, but it's like a very, it's, it's, a, it's a humor that really works on the page because it's, it's punny and it's like playing with language a lot. So like yeah. it works in that medium, but it doesn't work on film. And so I think where I do struggle with it is when you get these, you know, uh, Ender's Game is a recent example. The movie I think was okay, but like, it they didn't really go for it. I think in the way that the book does, and I think you, if you're gonna make a a, a version of of a, a novel that, especially like a famous one, it sometimes it just feels like a cash grab and it feels kind of hollow, and that's when it bugs me. Um, is when it doesn't feel like it was given the respect is due or they just missed the point entirely. Um, I, I guess, um, yeah, I agree with you. There's definitely cash grabs. Hey, this book is popular. Um, I think darkest minds is an example. I didn't read the book, but it conveniently came out after, you know, the young adult dystopian novel craze was going on. It only had one movie because people were getting fatigued of it, but going back to kind of the dark tower, I, the one criticism I remember when it was announced was Roland being black. Um, changing his race that was a big thing because people bring up uh, the drawing of three which i think talks a lot on racism issues and how roland doesn't understand certain things um 
my counter to that is because we're not doing drawing a three, it doesn't really matter that he was played by an amazing actor. Um, Idris Elba is actually a pretty good role. In, like, I honestly, him and McConaughey are probably the only bright spots of those movies, <laughs> of that movie. No. Is, yeah, they are, they, they kill it. Like, totally. they really do. And, um, you know, I know people wanted, I'm sure Timothy Oliphant was like every fan casting ever for Roland, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I would really have been cool with Idris Elba. <laughs> I mean, he's great. Uh, he, he's, as far as like <clears throat> that stoic kind of cowboyish type persona, like he, that's what he brings to basically every role, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, I think it's kind of a natural casting, but they missed on, on just everything there. Well, like, uh, yeah, that movie was terrible. But I, I do think like there, there's, you know, at least with Marvel, when they, when they kind of ignore their source material, I feel like they do it because they're creating like almost a new mythology. They're creating like a kind of like a visual comic book or something, right? Like a, they're creating kind of their own series and they're drawing inspiration from the, from the source material. Um, yeah, but, they do it. They do it to fit their own, the universe that they've created because they can't adapt something like civil war because half the characters in civil war haven't been introduced to the films yet. Same with infinity war, you know, and to be young, and like at the same time, like I don't want to dwell too much on this point, but you know, I, I talked about this with someone in work the other day because they asked they they've never seen the movies properly and they wanted to know what Thanos's motivation was, you know. And I said, okay, are we talking about movie Thanos or comic book Thanos? Because movie Thanos, you know, had this idea of he thought he was trying to save the universe by removing half the universe, you know, for lack of, you know, lack of um, what you call it, you know. food and resources and stuff yeah but comic book thanos was just thirsty you know he just wanted to impress lady death which is stupid it's like you know so that's that that's that's why i don't really mind when marvel do it um because they do it to fit fit their own universe they need it to do it that way um so my my first hot take which i'll call a lukewarm to medium take only because we've talked about it a few times on the podcast before and you guys can probably guess what we're going to talk about now um out of the four big slasher franchises halloween friday the 13th nightmare on elm street texas chainsaw massacre friday the 13th is without a shadow of a doubt by a country mile the absolute worst when we talk about like overall quality of the franchise and I, there's one very, very basic reason why this is is with the other three with Halloween, with Friday the 13th, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, each of those series has at least one film that is actually like a really good film. You know, it's like objectively a good movie. It's well-made or it's well-written. I cannot say that with any Friday the 13th movie. It has some fun movies for sure, but I cannot say that there's any Friday the 13th movie where I sit down and I go, that's a really a great, well-made, put-together film. But with Halloween, obviously, you have the original. Same with Texas Chance of Massacre. Like both of those like first films are like two of the most important horror films ever made. You know, Nightmare on Elm Street, the first film is great. The third film is great. New Nightmare is great. Even like Friday or even Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, um, you know, even though it's not a great film, it has some really great um, social commentary in it. You know about the sort of home homoerotic aspect of it. All right, my counter for this yeah. is going to be 
part six, Jason. Lives. Jason lives. No, yes. it's no, it's you know what? No, I'm not. I'm not having this. Jason lives. <laughs> okay, the only part, like that sequence, that kind of you know trio of films. The only good aspect is is that sort of recurring character. What's his name? Is it Tommy? Or am I mixing? Yeah. Tommy Jarvis. Tommy Jarvis. Yes, I was. I was thinking Tommy Doyle. But that's Halloween. Tommy Jarvis. He's the only out of the whole series. He's the only real character that you know is actually a good character. He's well written. Like the other series have those. You know, Halloween obviously has Laurie Strode and and Doctor Loomis. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street has Heather Langenkamp's character. I can't remember her name now. Um, uh, who, oh, Nancy. Nancy, yeah. Who like comes back like throughout the series and and has good progression throughout the series. And obviously, Freddy himself is probably the best. You know, the most interesting in terms of like you know character. Maybe maybe in all four. But Leatherface is also super interesting. Michael Myers is incredibly interesting. Jason is fucking boring. I'm sorry, but he is. Like, he's so boring. Um, no, but, you know, here's, here's the case for Jason Lives, though. He A car topples over, a, a van topples over, turns over 20 times, catches on fire, big explosion, and he comes walking out like a freaking like immortal kind of action badass. And it's like in that moment... The, the whole franchise switches to something which is it should have been, I think, earlier, which is like they, they just fully embrace like the campiness of it. Right. And and it becomes this like fun series. Yeah. And I, oh, you know, I and I'm all, oh, sorry. sorry. I was just no, gonna, I was just going to say. Take I'm, the, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, you, you uh, get, you're good. You're good. You're good. Just, just very quickly. I was going to say, I'm not disputing the series in various aspects is not fun. I'm disputing that out of all of those four, in terms of overall actual cinematic quality, it is by far the worst. And I don't necessarily disagree with you when you talk about the big four. I might say Texas Chainsaw Massacre has had lower points than Friday the 13th has. Um, It hasn't had the highs of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But the reason I bring up um, Jason Lives is because I think it's a very important film as far as like horror cinema goes. Like we... I think Scream owes some of its success to Jason Lives. I think there's a progression of Slumber Party Massacre, Jason Lives, Popcorn, New Nightmare, Scream. It's like this slow progression to postmodernism. And I think Jason Lives plays a decent part in that, in its uh, kind of meta humor it has throughout. Now, it's obviously not as much as like Scream or Popcorn or New Nightmare do it. But it definitely has it there more than a lot of films at the time did. Uh, sorry. Are also, are we, I, I, like, I think that's a really good point, Zach. But are we just going to let Adam list off the four big horror franchises and not include Child's Play? I mean, I, I was going to know that Child's Play's great. <laughs> I didn't know that because I've never seen any Child's Play movies. So I can't really sit here and say they're better than Friday the 13th. Uh, I would say they are. But that's, you know, Child's Play has its fan base. <laughs> And, but then there's like, I mean, there's like Puppet Master, there's like Hellraiser, there's like, I don't think you can say there's... Well, I'm talking about slasher specifically, like I wouldn't put Hellraiser as a slasher movie. Uh, um, right. I was talking about slasher franchises specifically. All right, all right. Rather than horror <laughs> franchises. Oh, we'd go all day if we're talking about horror franchises. There's yeah, bad. yeah, exactly. There's horrible ones. 
What about the Psycho franchise? That's a slasher franchise. The first two are really good, though. So it, it already loses because the first one was made by Alfred Hitchcock. So like it's already, <laughs> like by default, it's better. Wait, Jason Goes to Manhattan is better than North by Northwest. Ooh, I won't fight you. I won't, I won't fight you on that one. <laughs> well, Chris, you might as well go next then. Uh, sure, sure, sure. Um, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm almost wondering if this is not even worth talking too much about now. I'll just go for it, though. This is my lukewarm take. I, and I have to preface this by saying from... When, when did um, the Marvel MCU start? Was it 2010, 11? 2008. Eight. Eight, 2008, yeah. So from 2008 to probably 2016, 17, I was at most midnight openings. So, like, I'm a fan of this series. I have to preface that. I like the spectacle. I like what they're doing with the franchise. We've talked about it before. I like that directors like Taika Waititi are, are engaged in this. I like that they pulled from Troma. And now um, uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy, sorry. Um, um, anyways, he's, he's been able to, you know, make a few movies now for them. Like, I like what they're doing, both uh, from a overall kind of industry standpoint. I, I disagree that Marvel's hurting blockbusters. I think um, there's, there's a lot of evidence that you can make, a, a, your movie can make a lot of money if it's good. Um, but... The last two years I've been going back on rewatch and seeing them all sort of without the hype. Uh, and so here's my warm take, I guess. These movies are like so shallow. <laughs> like yeah. these are like, like so much. I didn't realize this at the time, you know, they try to bring in some big ideas and stuff and they try to make it, uh, you know, whatever. But like, I am, I'd say if, if my average rating for these movies coming out of the theater has been like a, you know, four out of five or whatever. Um, so I'm they're They're all dropping by about a point on my second watch. And I'm wondering if, if they, if they're going to keep dropping or what, but um, yeah, they're, they, they are, they're all too, like they're, they're too long. A lot of them. Um, and, you know, there's only so many times you can see the end of the world happening before I think it starts to get a little bit dry. So I'm enjoying them less the second time through. Well, I know Adam's going to have a decent amount to say. So I, I, just to add on to this, I think Marvel, and this is a positive. I know I'm probably the most negative person with Marvel here. I think they make a great case for why the theater experience is so important. Mm -hmm. like these movies are made to be watched on the screen like on a big screen i think you get the most out of them that way i think you know being in that you know and i'm, I'm not just talking about like the theater in general the theater with a crowd like the the hype you have around this the the people the excitement people have around it is infectious in its own way when you sit at home and you're just watching it for fun i think it does lose that and i think you know if there is one case for the theater, it's spectacle movies like that, for comic book movies, to, you know, why theaters, you can't just unload this stuff on Disney Plus and call it a day. It needs more than that to be successful. Yeah. And I completely agree. You know, I, I typically 
don't really re-watch a lot of Marvel movies. I go see them in the theater and I have a great time and then I wait for the next one to come out. Mm. They're not something I really sit at home and, and re-watch because they will lose something. It's going to be the same when, when Top Gun Maverick comes out on home video. I probably won't watch it because it will never be as good as, I, as when I watched it on the big screen with the people in the theater, with the sound system, full blast. It, it will never be as good as that. And this is why I've been imploring everyone I meet to see Top Gun now while it's in the theater. Because if you wait till it's at home, you're not going to enjoy it as much. And I think Marvel films are the exact same way. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of, um, you know, the people I've talked to about Dunkirk. People who saw it in the theater, I've noticed, have been a lot more positive on it than those who waited till it came out on video and watched it. Because oh. I think that movie is a lot more successful on the big screen. When you're completely immersed in a dark room and you're just paying attention to nothing else. Yeah, can we, this is like a semi-hot take, but just can we do like a really quick just tangent on this? Can we, can we like, can we stop with the whole Chris Nolan's a hack thing? Like, I'm fine if, if people don't love his movies, but, and, and, you know, there's a critique, he's kind of a one trick pony kind of thing, but like, he's a really smart guy and like, he knows how to make a big budget movie and he's like never lost money. Right. So, I mean, he's like a real director. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, he's like the modern day James Cameron, you know? Or you mean Michael Bay? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think James Cameron's a good like some people maybe will say Spielberg, but I think Spielberg's films have a lot more emotion than than Nolan's do. Uh, yeah, modern James Cameron is not a bad way to put it because you know he's guaranteed to make the studio money. There's a reason why you know Warner Brothers were happy just to give him blank checks because yeah. he knows how to make a you know a spectacle. He knows how to make a great action movie. Um, that also has a bit of an emotional layer or not emotional and a, a layer of intelligence to it as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's a big reason he didn't want Tenet to not go in theaters. I think he's aware of this too, how important his movies are to the screen to be enjoyed. And, you know, I don't yeah. necessarily agree with how he went about it, but I understand why he was insistent. And the same can be said of the recent Top Gun as well. You know, that was supposed to come out two years ago and Tom Cruise was insistent that he that they wait until the theaters reopen because again he would have known that it probably wouldn't be doing as well on home video because it wouldn't have been getting the word of mouth that it is everyone that I everyone I know that's seen this movie just talks about how great it is to see in the theater and yeah. I think this is in the same boat you know it'll be the same with the Mission Impossible movies you know they're just great to see on a big screen with great sound now saying that I probably rewatched the Mission Impossible movies at home a lot more than I'll rewatch a Marvel movie at home um, because I don't think they're necessarily demand a big screen, but they'll certainly be helped by it. And this is the way that we'll tie in um, Chris Nolan and the Marvel movies and Apichat Pong, Where is South Cool, who also only lets his movies come out in the theater. <laughs> Except for Memoria, because that's coming out on movie soon. Oh, that's yeah, right. He's getting a Blu-ray release, just not in that's the U.S. Right. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's right. He went back on his word. He did. He did. So um, what do you got next for us? Okay. Uh, so, Adam, you're going to think this is directed at you. I haven't gotten <laughs> to the one that's specifically directed at you yet. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> I will say, Adam, when I say this, it really is to you because you actually explain what you mean by this. But one thing I see a lot online and a lot in film criticism is the, the kind of catch-all phrase, this movie is style over substance. And uh, 
it really, I feel like when it, when I read it, it, it's a lot of, well, this is a stylish director, and I don't like the movie, so I'm just going to say it's style over substance, without actually exploring necessarily if there is substance there, or exploring like if the idea of the substance is through its style and things like that. It just it, it it's become kind of like one of those review buzzwords at this point. Like any meaning that style over substance used to have, or some people still use it properly has become just a catch-all, I need to explain why I don't like this movie without actually exploring why I don't like this movie. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, this idea of, of substance true style is something that's interesting, and I'm sure a lot of genre film fans would point to that as being their um you know their explanation you know their explanation for why they they get enjoyment or why they think sort of genre films are great because the substance comes from the particular style the film is made in you know i suppose that's why you can justify liking exploitation films or films like action usa i I say with a sly grin on my face (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i I agree though like there is a lot of there's a lot of buzzwords that get thrown around that makes it easier to say I don't like this movie, but without actually explaining why you don't like it. Um, like when I say style over substance, and I know it's not directed at me, so I don't take this personally at all. Like when I say when I say style over substance, I do mean that um, it feels like they were more interested in making a film look a particular way than they were about exploring particular themes. Um, mm. But I can't, I, I, I would say that's definitely not how a lot of people would see it also so that's just that's just my that's the easiest way for me to articulate when i when i see a film that looks nice but i don't see a lot below the surface style over substance is the easiest way for me to bring that across but i can definitely see how it can become an easy buzzword just to use when you don't like a film so i think that's a that's an interesting take what do you what do you think of that chris yeah, I'm just trying to think of um, if that comment itself was style over substance. <laughs> Could have been. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, actually, I think, uh, Zach, one of the things that's been true on this podcast for me, if we can go meta for a second, is you have sometimes takes that at the surface appear like, I, I, I'm not sure which direction you're going to go. And then... You, you hit with something that's quite profound, even though it's simple. And I think that, you know, the movies that you like and a lot of the movies that I like, um, the, the, the script serves as a, a way of helping get to like an event or like a, like a, a main point, right? Um, like in a lot of horror movies, it's like the, there's, there's scenes of gore and then you kind of have to build a script around it <laughs> or something, right? Or like, hmm. um, and, and so I think, I think I agree with you. I like this idea that every film is, is going to have a, a reason why the director or the, the screenwriter or the director or the producer, some, some reason why it's made. And not everybody's trying to make a Bergman movie, right? Or like not everybody's trying to make one of these films that's going to have explore like, like real meaningful depths of the soul type type stuff. And so... Uh, in, in that case where you just want to have Phantom of the Opera, but in a mall, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, like, how do you, you know, how do you put a script around that? You, and you're going to take some shortcuts and you're going to, you're going to um, hopefully 
frame it in such a way that it's just a good time. This is why I like Jim Wynorski so much, you know, the guy that did Chopping Mall. And then he did, um, uh, shoot, is it Death Stalker? Is that the series? I believe it is, yes. Yeah, that sounds um, right. He did the second one of those. You know, he took the first Death Stalker is, it's okay, but it's one of these sword and sandal movies and it's goofy. Like it's super goofy because, you know, it's obviously shot on a stage and like it's obviously, you know, not from that time period. And so he just kind of had some fun with it. And he brought back that real douchey guy from Chopping Mall and made him the main character. So the whole thing is kind of like, a, he's almost like a, like a budget Bruce Campbell. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Like, so it makes that movie interesting again, because it sort of like recognizes what it, what it is. It's a goofy, no offense to people that love sword and sandal epics, but like, you know, a lot of them are kind of goofy. And so it, it, recognizes that and has some fun with it so i'm just a long way of saying i think i, I agree with you i like i like that the framing of that yeah i, I guess uh, the best example i could use of like when the style is sort of the substance is uh, something like i know you're a big fan of it too chris is uh female prisoner scorpion 701 oh yeah yeah, yeah oh i didn't mean to cut you off man just agreeing with you yeah no that movie's a great example of it. go on Are you still there? I think we might have lost Zach. Ah, okay, darn. Um, well, I'll wait a second and I'll just go back in and then see if he joins in a second. Um, actually, that's a great example. Um, you know, it's funny because that that movie, like there, there's that whole genre trope around, you know, female kind of women in prison movies. Uh, and it is fully that too. Like it's a genre movie too, but the way that they introduce uh colors and, and editing and it almost becomes like a like a modern art piece at many times where, you know where they'll reveal that they'll kind of break the fourth wall uh and or at least pull out of the reality of the movie and then make it this very artistic piece of work that's surprising so i think that's like a, a near perfect example actually it's a film i need to watch it's actually it's on my it's in my watch list on the arrow player i have like a little sort of watch list saved for films i think it's because we talked about it like a couple of months ago on the yeah. podcast i can't remember where what, what the context was but we talked about it and i added it to my watch list i need to actually get around to to actually watching it was it am i mixing this up is it the same person that was in um what's that film that lady snowblood? yeah lady snowblood so that that actress she's in when she was at her peak, she, her name was Michael Kaji. She was in maybe like 10 or 12 movies a year. Uh, and she, they were all kind of these, the more wild side of Japanese cinema. So she's sort of a, not a scream queen, but whatever the equivalent would be for the, the Japanese art scene at the time. But um, yeah, she's fantastic in this. I, I know that we are going Zach, Adam, Chris, but mm -hmm. the, my next one ties really well into style over substance. Are you okay if I go next? Yeah, sure, shoot. Okay. I kind of alluded to this before, um, but I want to I want to have it out. I don't think Edgar Wright is a good filmmaker. <laughs> I think Edgar Wright is somebody that I would want as a friend. Um, I would love to. I would love it if he were to join our film club. And I think, generally speaking, he seems like a wonderful human. So, this is not an attack on him, but. Uh, the films that he makes, I feel like I've always 
My, the one exception is Scott Pilgrim versus the world. For some reason, I just love that movie. Yeah, I like that movie too a lot. Um, other than that, if I go through and I know like I have, you know, hot fuzz and like I know the movies he makes, Shaun of the Dead, like I, I get it. That in the TV series, I kind of put him on the map called Spaced. I get it. I get why people like him. It's different. Uh, he uses editing in kind of unique ways. Um, but doesn't I, I just I leave I always leave his movies feeling like the promise of the concept was not lived up to in a way that that I wanted it to be and so I'll just kind of leave it at that but y'all defend tell me how I'm an idiot no I I I get where you're coming from I think he is a director that relies heavily on you know visual flair to maybe cover up the cracks so like you know, like films like, like you know, his Cornetto trilogy, they all have that moments in the film with those sort of quick snappy editing of just mundane things like someone pouring a pint or putting their keys on the table and that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's cool. You know, when you see that first and you're just like, like when you first like maybe get into film and you start watching those films or maybe you're not really into film and you just, you, you watch them because they're popular. They do stand out like, oh shit, this, this is kind of different. It's cool. Right. But like, I don't think it necessi- I don't think it, it equates to being a great filmmaker. Now, I will say that I, I get a decent amount of enjoyment out of a lot of his films. Um, you know, the first two Cornetto trilogy films, Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz. I actually, I think they're really, I think they're really funny. They're fun films, especially Hot Fuzz. I have a lot of love for that film, and I really like Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Again, are they like, you know, top films ever made? No, they're entertaining, and I think he's. I think he's a good entertainer. I don't think he's necessarily a great filmmaker, but he's he's certainly a great entertainer in a way that's different to, you know, blockbuster filmmakers, you know, like the the James Camerons of the world. Yeah. I'm just realizing, I have you all seen um, Baby Driver? That's the one that I haven't seen, but also was very critically acclaimed. Oh, it's, um, you know, I don't care too much about it. Okay. I, I've seen it and, it, you know... It, if you don't really care that much for everything else he's made, you're not going to like this one. Like it is kind of his stuff to the max. It's, you know, it's not really going to be focused on storytelling a lot. It's not necessarily a beautiful film. It's decent looking, but it's all focused on the music choice and the editing. This is, that's his bread and butter as a filmmaker. It is sight gags. It's, um, it's snappy editing. So it's really going to come down to how you feel about those elements. But I like it, but I also like write in general. You know who I, I, I like that, that um, reminds me of Edgar Wright, but it's kind of a version that I like is Louis Leterrier. Um, so he did the Transporter movie. He did Unleashed with Jet Li. He did uh, Clash of the Titans. He did Now You See Me, The Brothers Grimsby. Oh, I'm uh, familiar with his work. I haven't seen any of those movies. Are you serious? Yeah. You haven't seen uh, Now You See Me, the one where they're like all magicians and they... I've seen that really stupid scene from the second one. That's because it's the one where like the card is flying around the room. Oh, yeah. He wasn't involved in the sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've, that, no, I've never seen I've never seen that movie. But like, I feel like... So he's obviously more action-y and, and, and Edgar Wright's more sort of... Um, I don't even know what you would call his stuff. More fantasy sort of just, you know, slight bends on reality. Um, but um, I feel like they're the same in that they use editing a lot and 
as, as like a major, major part of the storytelling. Um, and I've always liked Leteria's films better um, uh, for, for that genre, but anyways. Well, this kind of leads me, leads me decently into, into my hot take. So it actually worked out well. Um, Cause I have kind of similar feelings for a director. Um, and I don't think Quentin Tarantino is all that great. Um, yeah. Is it, this might be the hottest take so far. Um, do we think I, everything interesting, everything that people talk about Quentin Tarantino for everything that people say he's really good at doing or is really interesting. He stole from someone else and they were probably French <laughs> you or, know, Japanese. or Japanese or black. He's, he is the world. He is the, the world's cultural appropriator filmmaker. He <laughs> just takes bits. And you know, like I get it. I get the kind of, he loves films. Again, he's like Edgar Wright. He loves cinema. He'd be great to talk to about movies, but I don't need to see him regurgitate a hundred years of cinema two hours every five years you know that's all he really does he takes aspects of of other films or other movements and just kind of frankensteins them together and regurgitates it out and the general public lap it up because they've never seen the stuff he's referencing whereas i have and i'm like or i've at least heard of it and i'm like okay this is yeah okay thanks quentin I appreciate the crash course in, in you know exploitation in black exploitation movies in Jackie Brown, for example. I uh, thanks for the crash course, or with Kill Bill. Thanks for the crash course in Japanese cinema. Cool, you know it's. I just don't. I don't get why he's held up as being some kind of like genius when really he's just a regurgitator or like a cover band. If a cover band was a director, you know, I feel like because a lot of the stuff really hits well with general audiences for some reason. Um, it just, it just hits, it hits general audiences really well. And they don't really understand that what he's like, you know, he doesn't understand what he's doing is referencing other things all the time. It just kind of annoys me that people hold him up as being some genius when he is just like Dr. Frankenstein. He, it's funny you mentioned cover band because before you got there, I was like, you know, he's kind of a more modern De Palma in a sense. Like De Palma's kind of a cover artist too, uh, especially when it comes to like Hitchcock. Uh, but he had other references as well. But uh, I think Tarantino does put it like over the top how much he does. I have plenty of hot takes when it comes to Tarantino. Uh, I don't think Pulp Fiction's that good. Um, I think Which Jackie is Brown so, is his of... best film. Um, yeah. Like I think Inglorious Bastards is his best film. I, I I agree with Pulp Fiction. I think you know two thirds. The only memorable parts of Pulp Fiction are the parts of Samuel L. Jackson and John Thank Travolta. You. The yeah. other two stories are forgettable and annoying, especially the Bruce Willis one. I cannot stand the Bruce Willis section of Pulp yeah. Fiction. Yeah, it's uh, you know people talk about like the nonlinear style of it, but I was like the reason it's not linear is because the cracks show how not great it is yeah that film would be boring as fuck if everything was in chronological order because <laughs> you'd have all the good stuff happen in the first 30 minutes and then the rest of the film would just be boring so well in the in the context of what you're saying where he's basically just like you know putting together different pieces he's like a master editor almost as opposed to a creative talent um, that would make sense that what you're saying though because Pulp Fiction was still early on for him right so Reservoir Dogs 
uh, was him putting his toe out there, right? And saying like, hey, like I'm going to make a crime movie. But that's a remake as well. It's a, like a thinly veiled remake of a, of a Korean movie or a Hong Kong movie. Um, yeah, but like, I'm just, I guess I'm saying like, uh, for for early filmmakers, they're going to be uh, the you, you, their early films are typically not the ones that are the most put together, the most mature, right? The most yeah. thought out. Like like Pulp Fiction has elements that he uses in all of his later movies that are uh, very like his style, very much like his style, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it makes sense that he gets stronger as he goes along. I I always quote Inglorious Bastards is my favorite too. He there, there's a certain group of directors. You know, uh, Wes Anderson, I think, falls in this. Quentin Tarantino. There's a certain group of directors that aren't necessarily fun to defend because it feels like they have millions of defenders, <laughs> right? Like, you know, like Wes Anderson doesn't need to be defended. I-, I like his movies. And so when people say they don't like him, it doesn't really bug me much. I, I like yeah. pretty much everything he's put out. But, like, I'm not going to bend over backwards to defend him because, like, he's fine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like he's, he's okay. Um, I think Tarantino fits in that bucket for me where like I I've never left one of his movies disappointed um, I even I even liked Hateful Eight uh, well, I like Hateful Eight too I think it's fun okay cool yeah I yeah. have not seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet uh, actually um, but I, I think his movies play a certain role where they're easy to rewatch. I think they're they're kind of mindless entertainment. They're all quite long. Like he makes long. I don't think he has a tight ninety, right? I'm just quickly scrolling through this. No, they're all that. Yeah, because Jackie Brown, hours. even though I think it's as quick as paced, it's still like two over two hours. Two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So Reservoir Dogs might be the only one that's yeah. So after Reservoir Dogs, he he became very impressed with himself. Um, <laughs> look, I I I won't all the reasons that y'all said to lay out like why you don't like him or whatever are true, but I still don't think it gives enough credit to the ability to re-edit those things, reshoot those things, remake those things in a, in a way that's impactful. Cause there's a lot of people that would do that poorly. Right. Now I do want to know, um, I do like Tarantino, I, but I'm also like you, Chris, I'm not going to sit here and overly defend him either to the sense that, uh, yeah, there, everything nice that could be said about him has been said so much. And, you know, he's not perfect in what he does. Um, there are elements. Like, I think every, it, it's interesting talking about Tarantino because I think everyone has a different favorite from him. And it's, I think it comes down to which genre you enjoyed the most. You know, if you like a World War II action adventure, then Glorious Bastards is a good one. If you like black exploitation, Jackie Brown's a good one. If you like samurai films, Kill Bill's a good one. Um, but it's all more like connecting to that genre, I guess, more than anything else. Yeah. Before we get into the last round, then Chris, how are you looking for time? Do you have time for another round of yeah, three? Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna make it. We're gonna make it. Let's do it. Good. Okay. Cool. Okay, so I will get on to my hottest take I have on my list, and uh, this is Adam. You'll me and you should have a good discussion with this. I think. Um, Cabin in the Woods is essentially blackface for horror nerds. <laughs> what a great, what a great phrase. Blackface for horror nerds. Okay. Like I don't like Cabin in the Woods that much. I just think it's a fun movie. Um, okay. Chris, have no, you seen I Cabin just, in the uh, Woods? 
I'm Do trying I, to piece together what that means. <laughs> it's a okay, I guess I will expand on it a little bit more. So essentially, to me, Cabin in the Woods comes off as a film made by people who are who really should be more familiar with horror. Both Drew Goddard and Whedon are familiar with horror, but it never comes off that way. It comes off as this idea of this is what we think horror films are. And it's like an outsider perspective of it. And it just annoys me the more I watch it. Like, it feels like it's like, uh, you know how that, I guess that's the way people describe, um, uh, what is it? A Big Bang Theory. That's not really a nerdy show. It's a show that's kind of faking being a nerdy show to pertain to that audience. Okay, nice. So is it, do you think that Cabin in the Woods is trying to be a straight horror movie? Or do you think it's trying to be like a Whedon movie? Um. A lo- I mean, it's most, it's definitely doing a meta commentary on the, uh, on a sense, but I think it's meta commentary just falls so flat. Like, you know, when you look at Scream and how it talks about slasher genres, it's coming from people who obviously understand the slasher genre, who are, you know, even though they are poking fun at a lot of the dumb stuff around it, it's still a love letter in a sense, just like Tucker and Dale is a love letter to a similar sort of thing that Cabin in the Woods is doing. The problem with Cabin in the Woods is it kind of feels a little mean-spirited and a little dismissive. And I think it's a fine line. And I think it's a fine line between a love letter and a mockery. And I think it goes over to that mockery because like, um, this is, uh, look, this movie's 10 years old now. I'm going to spoil it. So there's a big part in the film where it's discussing like um, the idea that the only thing horror fans are interested in are blood. And it's just like, it's such a, weak criticism that you hear if you're really into horror and people aren't that oh you're just in it for the blood and guts you're just in it for this you're in it for the formula and it's like no that's i mean yeah i mean i like slasher films i understand slasher films are bad but i'm not opposed to things changing and that's i feel like it's trying to make a commentary that just doesn't exist outside of people who aren't really into horror i made for horror fans so you took it as a personal affront of like zach you like horror for dumb reasons and you're like i reject that yeah pretty much i mean and i think it's it's something you hear commonly uh give me one second <laughs> that's awesome well yeah i i don't know maybe um I, I don't know about the psychological element there if you need to um sit on a couch with me for a while we can talk about that um <laughs> zach but i for me cabin in the woods is just fun like that's i i'm not going to defend it as great it's just when the world opens up and you see the way it ends, it's just a fun twist. Reminds me a little bit of the movie Cube, if y'all ever saw that, that older kind of uh, independent horror film, um, where it just opens up into a, a bigger world. And you, the first time you see it, it's kind of a cool reveal. So that's my, I, I won't stand I'm, on the stump and defend Cabin in the Woods, but that's the reason I like it. Yeah, I'm very unoffended by Cabin in the Woods um i've seen it maybe two or three times over like the course since it's come out and yeah i just thought it was i just thought it was a fun time i'm not really offended by it in any way but i'm not gonna also sit here and say it's like a a great movie or anything like that i certainly see where zach's coming from um because that is a big part of the whole point of the film is that you know these horror films get made to appease these bloodthirsty gods and the fans you know they just want to see you know the 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 engineers behind this sort of horror world engineer it to to show very superficial things to show sex and to show blood 
and I get where Zach's coming from that maybe that's offensive to hardcore horror fans who have probably been told that so much. The reason you like horror films is because you like to see tits, you like to see people get killed in horrible ways. When there is a lot more, and we can obviously speak, we're horror fans as well, Chris, so we're not, Zach's not the black sheep here. You know, we can definitely attest that's not the only reason we watch horror films. You know, a lot of horror films have great social commentary in them. They, a lot of them have great characters and have great plots on, you know, obviously the Friday 13th films, we're not talking about this when we talk about this stuff. Um, but um, <laughs> the cabin, cabin in the Woods can maybe seem like it's, it is making a, you know, I, suppose I can get where he's coming from, perhaps making a mockery of horror in that sense that they kind of forget about the good things about horror and just kind of rely on the, you know, the things that obviously like the blood and the, the sex and stuff that's permeate, permeates throughout horror, but they forget about the good things about it as well in Cabin in the Woods. But at the same time, I, I'm not, I'm not offended by it because I still think it's a, it's kind of a fun film. Yeah. I just want to add one point of nuance to that, because if you go back and you look at the world, like what was happening in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, when so many, so many of these movies that we talk about in horror, especially slasher movies, right? We talk about some of these. Um, the, the producers were, were very keenly aware that if a movie had nudity in it, it would sell better on VHS, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not ready to dismiss. If you talk about H.G. Lewis talk or Roger Corman talk, or if you talk about some of these people, they knew what they were doing by including that stuff in there. So I'm not ready to say dismiss that completely and say that they were uh, it was an accident that there was blood and, and and nudity in these movies right but I just we're we're all at a point a slight twist to what you said I think that that's not that's not giving enough credit to the ability to say okay what are the elements I need I need a shot of a, a woman in the shower and I need a shot of like a knife going into somebody but like it's still hard to build a world around that that's interesting and compelling. And there's a, the, the thing that I've always loved about horror, especially, is you can, it's one of the most effective ways of making social commentary because the things that you remember about the movie are like, I think Get Out's a great example of that, right? You remember a lot of the horror elements, um, but the social commentary is like right there as well. So it's sort of, you, you, it's, you can be entertained but it's not like a drama where the, the whole point of the movie is just to be about this commentary. It's more subtly like tucked in underneath an entertaining movie. And I think that's where, that's why I love horror so much. For sure. Um, okay. I think you're next. What's, what's your hot take? So my last hot take is another director one. Um, and this probably is probably, this might actually be my, my least hot take, but depending on how you feel, because I know you have a particular love for this particular director, but I think that with Federico Fellini, his films that are more grounded are so much better than the films where he tries to be fantastical or surreal or anything like that. So I, I look at a film like Ivitaloni or La Strada. They are so much better than something like Amarcourt or a, like I do like Eight and a Half a lot. It's one I think it's an amazing film. It's a masterpiece but I would much more readily sit down and watch Ivitaloni or Estrada than I would watch Eight and a Half again. And I think that was something he lost as he went on in his career. He leaned more into the fantastical stuff and he moved away from the realist stuff. And I think that his later output is a lot weaker because 
he just I, I just I just think those ones are, are a lot better they just do they you know what I'm I'm a person who likes realism anyway I'm, I'm definitely a neorealist guy um so those films just hit a hell of a lot more harder for me than his sort of later more surreal fantastical stuff there, there's a reason for that I think so um have we uh, have we talked about this is not going to be my hot take but maybe it's a semi-hot take I think Charlie Kaufman is an amazing writer. And I think that when he doesn't have a director, his, he loses something. I agree. <laughs> he needs Spike Jones. Yeah, right. And I think that, so Fellini, if you look at the, the team that was around him in his early movies, he had, a, he had the same writers and there was like four of them. And on each movie, like two of, at least two of them would be there. Sometimes there would be a third or sometimes, maybe even once or twice, there was all four, but you know, he had his like team behind him that helped shape and craft and mold these ideas, right? And then as he went on, they had creative differences and he became a little bit more of a prominent figure. And it's almost like it was the, the band that became famous and then he became the front man and went off solo, right? If we're, if we're talking about cover bands before. So all of a sudden his ideas became bigger and better and the ones that needed to go with, right? There's a lot of talk about some creative differences and he found writers that would more support his vision so I think there's a reason for what you're saying. I think that the writing team he had around him were much more grounded in the neorealism side. Um, and I think that the, if there's a movie he made called The Clowns. And I think if you ever see it, it explains a lot of what happens to him later in his career. I think at heart, he views himself as a, he said, uh, he uses a phrase. He says, I'm, um, I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but he says, I'm a born liar. Right. And typical Fellini, he's it's tongue in cheek. But what he means is he likes to tell these big, crazy stories. Right. And so as he had freedom, I think as he had more financial freedom and creative freedom, I think he he liked to go deeper and deeper into this like fantastical world. And like when he did audition and casting calls, he was looking for faces. Right. So he wasn't looking for your ability to act. He was looking for interesting faces and things that he could add into his movies. So everything was like visual and uh, in, that, in that way. And so I don't think you're wrong. Um, uh, and, and I think it's just a matter of preference. I like the films of Jodorowsky way more than I thought I would. And I like the more insane elements of Fellini. I think I'm drawn to the, that, that visual style. I think I'm drawn, to, I like that stuff. Like, I, I like it when the movie pulls away and tries something different and new. City of Women is a great example. He goes nuts. Uh, his, his movie Satyricon is a great example. Like, he goes nuts in these movies. Um, but I like it. Uh, but I can completely understand why people don't. <laughs> it's interesting, bro. I didn't know about the writer aspect, so I could definitely explain it. Because I, I actually have a similar issue with, uh, with Wes Anderson. Um, like I, I like Wes Anderson movies. Royal, Royal Tenenbaums is one of my favorite movies ever. And when he doesn't have a screenwriter with him, yeah, it it goes to shit. Like I I Grand Budapest Hotel annoys the absolute crap out of me. The dialogue and the script because he wrote it on his own before he had someone with him. Like either he was writing it with Owen Wilson or Noah Baumbach or someone like that, and they were able to reel him in a little bit. And then when he went off kind of writing on his own, like Grand Budapest Hotel looks amazing and it's really well acted. I think it's a good film overall, but I don't think the script is anywhere near his strongest script. I think it's probably one of his worst scripts. Um, 
and it's, it's probably because he wrote it on his own and there was no one there to kind of reel him in a little bit. Now, I haven't seen the French Dispatch. I don't even recall if he wrote that on his own or if that was another one he co-wrote with someone. But the Grand Budapest Hotel is the one I always kind of point to because he wrote that on his own. It was his first one that he wrote soul. And I think it, it really shows. Yeah, You know, it's funny. That's the only Wes Anderson film I like. <laughs> really? yeah. it's the only one i don't like wes anderson but i don't mind grand budapest that's fine interesting um well this is something i had taken there but um uh, I, don't, I don't know how much there is i don't know zach if you have any opinion on fellini uh otherwise I can... i've never seen a fellini film so I have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay well speaking staying in art house for a second this is going to feel like an attack adam and i promise i don't mean it that way i watched Chunking Express for the third time recently, because I'm going through this, uh, all of Wong Kar, uh, Karwai's films, right? Um, I think the character of Faye is a very annoying character. And I think that Cop 663, it, it, basically that movie is starting to annoy me because all he does basically is choose toxic women. And I, I don't like that for him. And it made me not like the film so much. Okay. A lot of people choose toxic women though. So it's, it's not an unrealistic thing. But like, it, it just kind of hit me as like a, like a emo version of Amelie or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh. That's 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 a funny um that's a funny comparison. Like she's um, just like, oh look at me, like I I I walk into his home when he's not there and like change his apartment and like oh yeah, she's like a super weird character. I'm not gonna sit here and say that Faye's amazing. Like she's like a super fucked up character in a way. And <laughs> you know, if she does, she like literally breaks into his into into a police officer's apartment to like clean it and stuff. Um she is very away with the fairies. It's probably the best. I don't know if that's a phrase you guys use in America or use it here in Ireland. Um, away with the fairies, you know, her kind of head in the clouds. Um, yeah. No pun intended for her career, later career change, uh, head in the clouds. Um, but <laughs> yeah, um, I totally understand not liking Faye. And I totally understand wondering why Tony Lung's character is drawn to her. Yeah. But I don't think that worsens the film. That's just my opinion, though. I don't think it lessens the film. Yeah, just kind of, for me, it kind of made it like, because that's the stronger story, right? The pineapple story is okay. But like... you know what? This is interesting. I thought so as well. But when I rewatched it most recently, I actually liked the pineapple story more. But initially, when I first watched it, I, I was always like, no, it's California Dreaming. That's the, that's the, that's the better one. But I don't know, the more I watch it, the more I actually end up liking the pineapple one a lot more than I did in it initially. Okay. Okay. But I think they're both great. I like both stories. You know, that's not to say, I don't think any of them are really, I don't think we can sit here and say one story is better than the other. I'm about to, I'm about to rewatch Fallen Angels, but I'm pretty sure it's going to jump ahead of Chunking on a rewatch. I like Fallen Angels a lot more the second time than I did the first time because the first time I watched it, I expected it to be Chunking Express too. Yeah. In terms of style. Um, I liked it a lot better the second time, but I don't know. Chunking Express is just one of those fuzzy 
fuzzy movies for me. You know, it just makes me feel fuzzy inside. Like uh, I talked about earlier, it 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 hits, um, you know, it hits in a particular way. Um, and it definitely hits hits for me. Nice. Like I think if we're talking objectively speaking, in the mood for love is his most accomplished film. Um, if we're just talking purely objectively filmmaking point of view, I think in the mood for love is probably his best. But I I I just like Chun King the most. It just hits you in that way. You're you're like an emo Amelie. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, I guess we're, there, there's not as many fists blown in this episode as I thought, or fists thrown in this episode as I thought. To be honest with you, when you told me before that there was one that might have been aimed at me, I didn't. I wasn't expecting Chunking Express. I thought you were going to sit here and try and tell us once again that Vertigo isn't any good. Um, so I, 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 was, I, I was surprised. I was surprised Vertigo didn't make its way in. I thought about it, but we already had that discussion and nothing is, you know, I, I still view it as an overrated film, but. Um, <laughs> don't know how many times I'm going to have to teach you this lesson, old man. Um, I purposely avoided a Zack Snyder take because I was like, eh, I'm sure that's been brought up. Before. <laughs> uh, saying Zack Snyder shit is not a hot take either, really. Oh, you were going to say he was good. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah <laughs> no, I, get it. No, I get it now. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this kind of different episode. I know it's different to what you expect. Um, some of this stuff, we've kind of brought it up before. Patreon listeners have probably heard us mention some of these things before in the past as well. So first off, we appreciate you all. You guys, here's to another 50. We'll see you guys soon. <laughs>